Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning, church. And a huge uh, hi to all of you who are up in North Durham. Uh, Great to see you guys virtually this morning. Well, this is week seven in uh, this series that we've been beginning in the book of Acts. And we're going to be looking at the book of Acts and Spirit, the Holy Spirit moving through the book of Acts in three chunks this year. And this is the last in this first series that we're doing as we get ready next week, as we start with baptism and as we get prepared for Christmas. And so we're looking at the moves of the Holy Spirit through the book of Acts in the birth and the establishment of the early church. Now, so far we've seen some really great things. We've seen some very exciting things happen in the book of Acts already. We've seen how the community has been coming together. We see how people have been sharing and caring for one another. We've seen evidence of great prayer meetings. And uh, last week, Pastor John led us through that great passage in Acts chapter 4 where they prayed for boldness and the place that they were meeting, the place that they were praying was shaken. And we've seen uh, episodes where great signs and wonders have been done in the name of Jesus, where people have been healed in Jesus' name. We've also seen episodes thus far in the book of Acts where preaching, where bold preaching has taken place. On two occasions, we've we've got the insight into Peter's sermons and where Peter preaches. And as a result of that preaching and as a result of the signs and wonders that are being done, we see mass conversions and also daily conversions happening. And so we've been getting this glimpse into the early church, into the life of the early church, and we're watching as the Holy Spirit has been moving in great power, and it is being an encouragement to us to say, yes, Lord, Spirit move in our day the way that you have been moving in the book of Acts, the way we're reading about in preaching and teaching and prayer, and in all of these ways, we say, yes, Spirit, move now amongst us. And let's not forget that Dr. Luke is writing all of this to Theophilus, to remind him of what's happened, to encourage him as a seeker or as a brand new believer in Jesus. But he's also laying out an honest defense of the faith through the work of the Spirit in the early church. We're given this great glimpse into the early church and seeing how the Holy Spirit moved in the days of the book of Acts. And as we'll see today, Dr. Luke doesn't pull any punches with how things went down when the Spirit moved in great power. If you have your Bible, whether it's a physical one like mine or if it's a virtual Bible, if you're using a phone, I would encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 4, and we're going to start today at verse 34, and we're going to read the first 11 verses also of Acts chapter 5. Now, normally don't do this because all of the verses a little bit later on are going to be on the screen, but this is a a story, an episode, or a glimpse into the Holy Spirit moving in the book of Acts that doesn't get preached a lot. And so I, I, want, I want you to capture like the whole story. So I'm going to read it all through so that we have the whole story of this episode in our minds as I then try to unpack it for us this morning and what it would, might mean to us as individuals and as a church here at C4 as we pray and as we cry out for more of a move of the Holy Spirit. So starting in Acts chapter 4. And verse 34, it says, There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, 
a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but he brought the rest and he put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourselves some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what, was hap- what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Well, thank you for coming to C4. Have a great morning, and we'll see you next week. (laughs) No, no, we've got to unpack this passage. We've got to understand. When the Spirit moves, He moves in unexpected ways. And we can't predict the move of the Spirit. We can't control the move of the Holy Spirit. And so there's some important things for us to see and to hear this morning. And it's no accident that you're here this morning or you're in North Durham and you're listening and watching today. And it's no accident that some of you are going to tune in a little later online and you're going to listen and you're going to watch what we're talking about this morning. It's no accident. The first thing I want us to see in this passage is that when the Spirit moves, integrity becomes a very important factor. There are two meanings, at least two meanings of the word integrity in the English language. The first use, and probably the one that's the most common use of the word integrity, is people think of integrity as a a sort of a character attribute. They they think of things like uh, truthfulness, that you can be counted on, that you adhere to moral or ethical principles, and that is a proper use of the word integrity. But the use that I'm using this morning is the second use of the word integrity. The word integrity also means wholeness, entirety, or perfect condition. In this second use of the word, it means that a person is a person of integrity when what happens on the inside and what happens on the outside of their lives match each other. There's no hypocrisy in the person. Their actions match their thoughts, and their thoughts match their actions. They are then a person who is whole, who is complete, who is congruent. They are a person who has integrity. Stories told of a woman who was driving down a busy street and she was being tailgated by a guy who was clearly in a hurry. Suddenly the traffic light in front of her turned yellow and she slammed on the brakes and the guy behind had to slam on his brakes. 
And the guy just absolutely, he lost it. He lost it. He started like blowing the horn. He started pounding the steering wheel. He started yelling at the, at the windshield because she had ruined his chances of making it through that light. As the guy was still in sort of mid-rant in his car and pounding on the steering wheel, he hears a tap on his, on his window. And he turns to surprise and he sees a police officer standing there. Police officer says, get out of the car. The guy gets out of the car. Police officer puts him up against the car, puts his hands behind him back, cuffs him, puts him in the back of the cruiser, and takes him to the police station. When he gets to the police station, you know, he's fingerprinted, he's photographed, and he's booked, and he spends some time in a holding cell. Well, a few hours go by, and another police officer comes, and he says, come with me, and he opens up the cell, and he brings him back to the booking room where the arresting officer, the original arresting officer, is standing there. And the original arresting officer says, I'm sorry, sir, we've made a terrible, a terrible, terrible mistake. I'm sorry, you know, you're free to go. He said, you see, I pulled up behind you while you were still blowing the car, while you were still flipping off the lady in front of you, and while you were cursing up a blue streak. And I saw the what would Jesus do bumper sticker and the little chrome chrome Jesus fish, and I assumed that you had stolen the car. Integrity. Integrity. What happens on the outside must match what happens on the inside of us. And Dr. Luke records two examples of in the early church here. He gives us this glimpse into the early church so that we might know and understand the importance of integrity. And he does this by contrasting two sets of people. Barnabas on the one hand and the husband and wife team of Ananias and Sapphira on the other hand. Look again at Acts chapter 4 and verses 34 and 35. There were no needy persons among them for from time to time those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Pastor John unpacked this for us last week. Talking about one of the things that was a sign of the early church, one of the Uh, attributes of the early church was that this kind of generosity was taking place in the early church. There were people of great need in the early church, just like in today's church, there are people of great need. There are those who need help, emotional, physical, and spiritual help. And there are those in the church who who have great resources. And in this case, he says, from time to time, people of great resources would actually go and sell their houses or their land. And what they would do when they got the sale, the proceeds from the sale of that, is they would take the money and they would put it at the apostles' feet. And they would bring it and symbolically they would be giving it to the church and giving up control. They would say, this was once my asset. Now I'm turning it over to the church. I am freely giving it to you and giving it to God. You do with it as you please. And we know that the gospel spread because of this. And one of the, one of the uh, episodes that we've got is this, this guy called Joseph. And we see that God moved in his heart. When I was in seminary, one of my profs used to say this, this book should be called Some of the Acts of Some of the Apostles. Because it's not all of the acts of all of the apostles. And we're just given these glimpses into the early church. But this glimpse into the life of Joseph and this glimpse into Ananias and Sapphira is so helpful. For you and I. Acts 4, 36 to verse 2 of chapter 5. 
Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, they also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but he brought the rest and he put it at the apostles' feet. So on the outside, like if you were in church, everything looks so similar with these people. Like look at all of the similarities between them. First of all, you have a guy called Joseph, who is a Levite, and and it's so significant what he does, and his ministry in the church is so significant that his name actually has been changed. The community of faith said, "You, you know what? You impact so many people. You shall not be called Joseph anymore. You will be called Barnabas. You are now son of encouragement. And it wasn't just because of this gift. If we read the rest of the book of Acts, we say that Barnabas is mentioned almost like 30 times in the book of Acts. We know that he was a preacher and a teacher. He was an encourager of people. And and he was, you know, very much involved in leadership in the early church. We also see this contrast with Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias, the name Ananias means that God is gracious. God is gracious. And Sapphira means beautiful. So here you have these three people all on the outside and it all looks the same. It all seems to measure up. Can you imagine, you know, saying in your church, hey, we're going to hear testimony from three people today. I'm going to call up son of encouragement. God is gracious and beautiful. What a lineup. It's an all-star lineup on a Sunday morning to give testimony. And from the outside, everything looks absolutely the same. They also sell property. Barnabas owned some property and he sold it. Ananias and Sapphira owned some property, and they sold theirs. So again, from the outward appearance, all the same. Both of them bring a large gift, and they put it at the apostles' feet. We don't know the amount of the gift, but we're led to believe that the sale of property would, you know, would give them a lot of funds. And so it seems that, because of the mention of it, that these are large gifts. Ananias and Sapphira brought a large gift to the church, and Barnabas brought a large gift to the church. So outwardly, there's a lot that looks the same. But integrity is a whole different story. It's a whole different story. Let's look at what made Ananias and Sapphira so different from Barnabas in this episode. The first thing that we find out in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, it says that they kept back a portion for themselves. Now I'm going to talk about this in a couple of minutes. Keeping back a portion for themselves wasn't wrong. So you need, you need to understand that. Like Peter even says to them a little later on in the passages, we'll see, like it was yours to begin with. No one forced you to even bring it. And you could have, you know, you could have brought uh, all of it or you could have brought a percentage of it. It was really up to you. But what Dr. Luke does here that gives us some insight into their motivation is brilliant. And we don't catch it in the English language. The word that Dr. Luke chooses to use here in the Greek for kept back a portion for themselves is a word that's only used three times in all of Scripture. It's used here. It's used in uh, Titus. And in Titus, it is translated, slaves do not steal from your masters. The other time that it's used is in Joshua chapter 7 and verse 11. 
The children of Israel had just come into the promised land. They just had a great victory, this massive fortress called Jericho. They had just walked around it seven days and then seven times on the last day, and God gave them a great victory. They didn't even have to lift a finger, and God gives them this unbelievable victory. And then the next day, they are going up against a little, like, nothing podunk town called Ai, and they get slaughtered at Ai. And God says, there's a problem with my people. And in, Act, uh, sorry, in Joshua chapter 7 and verse 11, it says, Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. A man called Achan saw some things that he wasn't supposed to take and he took them for himself, some gold and some silver, and he buried them in the ground in his own tent. And that's why the Israelites got slaughtered when they went to this small town. And as a result of his sin, he was called out along with his entire family and they were put to death. Those are the only three times this word is used in the New Testament, sorry, in the whole of Scripture. Slaves do not steal from your masters. In Joshua 7, 11, they have stolen. And in Acts chapter 5, they have kept back a portion. The word means literally to embezzle or to swindle. So here we see a lack of integrity on Ananias and Sapphira's part. That they bring, they bring this great gift to the church and on the outside it all looks good. They're just like Barnabas. But they've kept back. They have swindled. They have intentionally tried to embezzle a portion of the funds for themselves. We also see that they were selfish. We know what Barnabas' motivation was. It tells us because of the context of the passage in in chapter 4. Barnabas' motivation is there are people of great need in the church and I have a piece of property. I don't need that piece of property right now. I should sell that piece of property, bring the proceeds to the church, and the church can use this to meet the needs of other people. I feel blessed and so therefore I want to share my blessing with other people. We're not told explicitly Ananias and Sapphira, but I think it's probably to be recognized just like Ananias, or just, sorry, just like Barnabas was recognized. Maybe they were looking for a name change too. Maybe they were looking for a special plaque on a seat in the church. (laughs) Maybe they were looking for a wing of Solomon's temple to be named after them. See, integrity is the issue. And I also see pride in this. Remember Pastor John pointed out last week, What Jesus said in the manifesto for the church in the Sermon on the Mount, when you give, not if, when, when you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Okay, so we're always supposed to give in secret. No, that's not the point. The point is the heart. It's the motivation behind why you give. It's the integrity. When you give, presumes that you're already going to do it on the outside. So Jesus was so concerned about your integrity and mine. He said, when you do it, Make sure what happens on the inside, your motivation for doing it, is pure and right. See, integrity is very important for each of us to consider as we come to church. 
you know, the lights are a little bright up here, but most of you look pretty good on the outside. Like, not bad. Probably a six and a half out of ten <laughs> on average. Because we, we can all fool each other, right? We can all look good on the outside. We can, we can see each other at the meet and greet time. We can see each other out in the lobby. Hey, how's it going? Oh, good. How are you? Yeah, fabulous. Boom, boom, boom. You know, all that stuff, right? And it's all good. It's all good on the outside. But integrity says that we match on the inside what we are portraying on the outside. And it is so important for us as individuals, but also then as a corporate community to make sure that we are people and we are a church of integrity. And as we pray, as we pray, spirit, move. We've got to be ready for the Holy Spirit of God to put his finger on the lack of integrity in my life and in your life and in our corporate life as a church. And what we do, what we do at the moment that he puts his finger on that area can change the course of our history. As individuals and as a church, it can change the trajectory of our lives The second thing I'd like us to consider from this passage of Scripture today is that every form of opposition to the Spirit moving has been external so far. Every time that we've read up in the first four chapters of the book of Acts, it's always been an external attack that has taken place. The opposition has been coming from the religious elite, from the Jews of the day, from the ruling authorities. They've arrested Peter and John on one occasion. They threw them into prison. They threatened them. They ordered them to stop preaching and healing and casting out demons in Jesus' name. And last week we saw that they went right back to the church prayer meeting and they said, Lord, let's do more of what we were told to stop. Let's go for boldness. And a great challenge to us last week for more. But now for the first time in the book of Acts, we see opposition coming from inside the church. It seems that Satan has adopted a new strategy to stop this move of the Holy Spirit. So interesting that last week we ended off the preaching time praying for unity. Unity in the church. Look at Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied just to human beings, but to God. Oh man, there's so much going on here. In just these two verses, there is so much going on here. Let me just try and unpack a few things for you. Let's look at Peter first. What I see in operation here with Peter is gifts of the Holy Spirit. See, anytime that you pray, Spirit move, what we should expect to see is the gifts of the Holy Spirit really sort of getting fired up and powered up. I mean, the gifts of the Spirit are with us if we are followers of Jesus Christ. I mean, the teaching of this church is that, the, that it, every Christian has at least one spiritual gift. And it is your duty as a follower of Christ to know that gift, to develop that gift, and to use that gift for the greater good of the whole body. But when we pray, Spirit move, when we're inviting the Holy Spirit to come in fresh power, in a new way, we are inviting the gifts to be amped up in our midst. And I see that happening here with Peter. 
I see at least three gifts being used by Peter just in these two verses alone. The first one I see is what we would call the gift of discernment. Peter is sitting in a church at the offering. Ananias walks in with a large sum of money and he puts it down at his feet. And everybody at church is going, this is going to be good. Peter's going to go, way to go, Ananias. Peter says, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? What? Are you kidding me? This is the gift of discernment. Understanding the source behind the actions that are being taken. See, for all of us, for all of us with no gifts of discernment, that's me, I'm on the outside and I'm saying, are you kidding? This is like a big sum. Don't do this, Peter. It's big money, buddy. We could use this. But Peter, using the gift of discernment, he looks at Ananias and he knows the source behind his actions. And he said, it's not from our side. It's not from our side. The second gift that I see in operation here, and that's very scary as a leader in a church, is words of knowledge. Not only does Peter say to him, Ananias, how is it the Satan has so filled your heart? That's embarrassing kind of enough in front of the church. But then he says, I know what you did. I know what you did. Words of knowledge. Facts. Insights. That Peter should have no way of knowing. Are now given by the Holy Spirit. Into this situation. And what we teach here at C4. Is that words of knowledge. Are almost always given. To either heal. Or to humble. See, see, I believe that there might have even been a glimpse of an opportunity here for Ananias. I think there's definitely a glimpse of opportunity for his wife Sapphira, as we're going to see in just a moment. But Peter now knows the source behind what Ananias is doing in public, and he also now knows what actually happened. And then the third thing that I see is a teaching gift. He chooses to bring clarity on giving. He says, a piece of property was yours to begin with. Like, you could have just come and said to us, I sold a piece of property. I need some money for some repairs around the house. And so what's left over I'm bringing, and here you go. Everything's good. But that's not what he does. He tries to pull a Barnabas. Ananias tries to pull a Barnabas. He wants to sweeten the deal. He wants to make it look even better. It was probably a big deal to begin with, but he wanted it to go over the top. And so he misrepresented what had happened. And Peter said, when you misrepresent what happens, that's not from our side, and I've got insight to what actually happened, and you're done. Let's look at Ananias for a second. Says to us, and Peter claims, through this gift of discernment, that you have been filled by Satan. Some are going, whoa, wait a second, Dave. Ananias, isn't he like part of the church? Yeah, he is. There's nothing in the passage 
that would lead us to believe that he's not part of the church, that he's not part of the fellowship of believers. He's recognized by Peter. When he comes and makes his gift, Peter knows exactly who he is. And he's coming and he's doing what others have done before him. He's presenting an offering in the midst of worship. And so there's nothing from the passage that would lead us to believe that Ananias wasn't a follower of Jesus. Let that hang in the air for a minute. But Peter says, you've been demonized. One source that I read this week said, demonization is the occurrence in the lives of Christians when Satan gets them so obsessed with an idea or a course of action that they get carried away and are blinded to the consequences. See, Ananias and Sapphira were so bent on this public recognition so wanted to look good in front of the leaders of the church and everybody else in the church. Their hearts were so filled with pride that they did something that they never, never should have done. But they lost perspective under the influence of Satan in their lives. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27, we read these somber words. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. When Jen and I were first married, we used to take these verses very, very literally. And so in that first year of marriage, we had a lot of late nights. <laughs> a lot of late nights. But the important thing here is that Paul is writing in Ephesians chapter 4 to Christians. And he says, do not give the devil a foothold. Unconfessed, unrepentant, harbored, hidden sin and the lives of believers can give the devil, can give demonic forces a foothold, a physical space in the life of the believer. We're not owned by them, but we are influenced by them. And that's what's happening here with Ananias. He lied to Peter. He lied to the church. And he lied to the Holy Spirit. Well, we see the outcome in verses 5 and 6. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who had heard what had happened. And then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. The result is that Ananias fell dead. Right there while making his offering. Now, we don't know specifically what killed him other than it was divine judgment Divine judgment on the seriousness of what he had done. And I read so many authors and so many commentators this week who had all kinds of theories. And yet it seems to me that scripture is so obvious and so clear here that this is divine judgment. In the Old Testament, God struck down Achan because of his sin. And here again, God judges See, what's happening here, what was happening in the sin of Achan when Achan and his whole family were killed... It's the same thing that's kind of happening here. There was something new that was happening. The children of Israel had just come out of Egypt. They just had their first great victory. They were all full of themselves as a community of faith. And they're about to enter and they've just entered into the promised land. And God says, I want to remind you as you go in to the promised land how I still view sin. I am still holy and I still view sin the same way. And here in this new church where things are really getting going and there's victory happening all around, there's preaching and teaching and signs and wonders, there's all kinds of stuff happening, God now reminds the church what he thinks about sin 
and how sin needs to be dealt with in the context of the family of faith. Now let's take a look at what happens with Sapphira in verses 7 to 9. About three, three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yeah, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. I'd love to believe that Peter is giving her a chance here. Can't say it for sure. Either way, he asks her point blank. If what Ananias brought to the church, if what Ananias brought in and offered, if their agreed upon offering, their gift to the church that particular day was the full price for the piece of property, and she, she agrees on the script that her and her husband had thought up together, and just like she planned, she lies to Peter. What a sad and terrible case of misplaced loyalty. Can I just say, in 20-something years of ministry, anytime a senior leader or a senior pastor of a church comes and asks you something and says, is this really what happened? Is this really what you did? Is this really what went on? Be very careful how you answer. Most of the time, they already know the answer. They're giving you an opportunity. Do not miss God-given opportunities for godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Sapphira, who should have been fully devoted to Jesus, her Savior, chooses to align herself with her husband. It's misplaced loyalty. It's misplaced loyalty. Their sin was public and so is their judgment. Verse 10, at that moment she fell down at his feet and died. And then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. You know, many people will ask and many people have asked why God killed them both. It's a hard question. Let me offer a couple things for you to consider as you try to figure that out yourself and as you try to work through that yourself. I would offer this, first of all. God's immediate judgment shows the seriousness with which God views sin and should be a constant reminder to all of us. See, when things are going really well (laughs) and when you get away with it, you think that God's actually okay with it. It's like when I used to be, uh, you know, in the business world, And some of the people at work would say, hey, listen, can you help me with my taxes? Yeah, sure, I'd love to help you with taxes. Okay, well, you know, here's here's my receipt for my tools and for the vacation I went on. And I'm like, you can't claim that on your tax return. Well, my brother-in-law did it last year and it was no problem. It just means he got away with it. It's still a problem. It just means you didn't get caught. And sometimes people have that view towards God. Oh, I lied. I cheated. I had a little fling. I did this, that. I'm okay. Nothing happened. 
Ananias and Sapphira are a great reminder to you and I of the seriousness with which God views sin. Maybe Jesus is trying to help us see that lying to each other, lying to leadership, lying to the church is really lying to God. That's what Peter says here. I thought they lied to Peter. Yeah, they did. Peter says, how is it that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? And later on, he says, you have not lied to human beings, but you have lied to God. Remember what the Apostle Paul said in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus when his conversion happened. He'd been persecuting the church. And Jesus, in this appearance to Paul, says, why do you persecute me? See, Jesus takes his bride very seriously, friends. He takes his bride very seriously. And if you lie to the bride, you're lying to him. Sin in the church by the followers of Jesus needs to be dealt with quickly and decisively because it will become a cancer in the body of Christ. Book of 1 Corinthians, Paul, writing to that church, said, make no mistake about it, friends. Everything that is done, everything that is plotted, everything that is hatched in secret will one day be laid out in open for everyone to see. Well, the last thing I want us to see from this passage is this. There's something here about the fear of God that we need to consider. You know, there's not a lot being said about the fear of God, just in generally in evangelical circles these days. I remember years ago when I was still in the business world, I went through what we would call here at C4 a time of personal renewal. I was, I was part of, I was in leadership, I was in lay leadership, I was still in business, of a small church in Mississauga, a church of about 120 people. And in a season in that church, God moved in a powerful way. The Spirit of God moved in great power. We saw people getting saved every day of every week for a couple of months. It was just profound because we had no programs at all. And in the midst of that, I personally went through this time of great renewal. I, I remember God was so near to me, so close. There was, you know, God had sort of moved from what we would say here, this omnipresence to palpability. And one of the things that I remember the most about that season in my life was that it was marked by a recognition and an understanding of the holiness of God, an awareness of my own sin like I'd never understood before. Every day in the morning and at noon, I would close the office door that I had and I would fall to my knees and I would be moved by the holiness of God and an awareness of personal sin like never before. Friends, as we pray for the Spirit to move, as we are inviting, as we're singing, as we're crying out, as we're praying, Spirit, move, Spirit, move in us. One of the things that we need to be ready for is for a great fear to seize the hearts of men and women based on the holiness of God. In chapter 5, in verse 5, and also in verse 11, it says the same thing. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. 
The fear of God and the consequences of hidden sin is a major theme in this passage. When the Spirit of God moves, when we pray for more of a move of the Spirit, let us be really clear what we're asking for. As followers of Jesus, we need to keep at the forefront of our walk a selfless, transparent lifestyle that must never be polluted by hypocrisy. Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthian church, when he's given them instructions and correction on communion because they weren't doing communion well. And he was telling them, look, you can't treat the Lord's table like this. You need to come with awe and reverence. And, and there's some guidelines that I want to give you. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 30 and 32. He's rebuking them now. He says, that is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep or died. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. What Paul is trying to say to them here is as you come to take communion, as you gather together at the body of Christ, there are some of you who are weak and sick. And there are some, like Ananias and Sapphira, who have died. And part of the reason that that has happened, Paul is saying, part of the reason that that has happened is because some of you have not judged yourselves. You have not taken stock of your own account, you have, uh, your own lives. You have not looked at your own integrity. You're not living inside the way you are showing yourself on the outside. And God will not be mocked. He deals with sin very seriously. You and I live in a society that is obsessed with appearances, physically, virtually, online. And there's a real danger that we will fall into the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. Because we're so busy trying to promote ourselves on the outside when we know that inside we're way off base. It's not like that on the inside. We need to be so careful, friends. Nothing short of personal and corporate purity is what God is seeking in us. God is not some cosmic killjoy. He knows how we're made. He has given us free choice. But he also has provided a way for us to have freedom in our lives and to deal with the stuff, the sin in our hearts. I want to close with this verse found in Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. When's the last time you came to church and you thought to yourself, our God is a consuming fire? You get close to a consuming fire, and what happens? You get consumed. Something needs to protect you against a consuming fire. Only when we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and only when our integrity is full and complete, when what's happening on the inside and outside match each other, And only when we're dealing with the sin and the stuff in our lives are we able to come before the consuming fire 
and not get consumed. So as we pray for ongoing renewal and revival and awakening here at C4, this morning I would love to lead us now in in a prayer, a prayer of personal holiness, a prayer for us to have a greater awareness and a greater sense of the holiness of God and a sense of awe and wonder and fear because the one that we worship, the one that we meet with, the one that we walk with daily is a consuming fire. And this morning, there might be some of you who are sitting here. I, I don't know all of your situations, but maybe there's some Ananiases and Sapphiras amongst us today. Maybe this morning, this has been your opportunity. Maybe God has put his finger on you today. And he's saying, is that really the way it is? If that's you this morning, please. Thanks. If that's you this morning, please. Don't be like Ananias and Sapphira. Don't miss the moment. Because it's a moment. It's a moment for you perhaps today. Some of you know that you've got some stuff that you've got to deal with. Don't presume any longer on the long-suffering faithfulness and grace of God. Maybe this morning is the morning that you need to finally bring what is hidden out into the open. Not to be humiliated, but so that you could be humbled before the consuming fire and have your sin forgiven. So Lord, I pray for a number of things this morning for myself and for this church. I pray for a greater sense of personal holiness. Lord, I know in my own life, it's just so easy for little things to creep in. Things that years ago would, I would have been convicted about and that would have bothered me like crazy today seem to be commonplace. God, forgive me. Forgive us. When we understand your true nature and that you are the holy, holy, holy one of Israel. Lord, may we be quick to deal with personal holiness. And Lord, as one of the pastors in this church, I would pray for greater holiness in our church. God, would you mark us by people who understand the holiness of God. And may we worship you with awe and fear and wonder. May we tremble in your midst as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And in all of that, Lord, we will be careful to give you the praise, the glory, and the honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.